0: Hello all, uh, this is Raj. Uh, welcome to another episode of Direct Shift Stories. And today we are joined by our COO Wamshi, uh, with Sarah Joyner, uh, who is Miss Georgia US. And she's known as the social social worker on Instagram and on social media quite active. She holds a bachelor's degree um, in social work from New Mexico State University and a master of social work from Texas State University. So in fact, uh, this would be one of the interesting stories where uh, you would see uh, that any woman would love to accomplish their personal goals and professional goals. So over to you, Wamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj.
1: Uh, thanks again uh, for making this happen, Raj, all the time. I know how hard you're working the back end. So thank you for that. Sarah, welcome. Uh, it's our privilege to have you on our stage today. Um, so for all the audience out there uh, that are listening to this show, and for many more that would potentially be playing this later, um, you know, it's our pleasure and privilege to have Sarah Joiner join us today. Uh, you know, like Raj said, uh, she's a licensed um, social worker, bachelor's and master's in social work. Um, uh, and, you know, she is pretty accomplished personally and professionally. She was uh, Miss Georgia. And as you all know, you know, you know, winning uh, on a stage like that requires somebody to be a complete uh, person. Um, And, um, you know, Sarah did a lot of work um, on humanitarian grounds, um, you know, working with refugees from across the country so that they can settle down uh, personally, professionally, academically in the country. Um, And as you all know, uh, that requires uh, so much, you know, human touch, you know, requires people to hold the other person's hand and take them and help them through the journey. And Sarah, we believe, is an expert in that. And today it's our joy to present to you all the story of Sarah, uh, and you know we would love to hear from her on um, you know her journey, um, her ob- obstacles, and how she passed all of those, um, and um, you know what her um, observations and advices are uh, to all uh, out there. Plus, especially in the space of mental health, uh, her views, opinions, and recommendations on what needs to change—that's what we want to bring out today. Um, And without much further ado, uh, here I'm presenting to you all, Sarah Joyner. Sarah, I know I may not have done full justice to um, your profile, uh, but please, please, um, you know, tell our audience and everybody out there a little more about yourself, um, you know, where you started, what got you here and what your ambitions are.
2: Definitely. Well, thank you again for having me here today. It's so exciting to be able to share my story with so many other individuals and hopefully inspire people to have a conversation around mental health and social work in general. I think that you touched on most things uh, about me, but I didn't know I wanted to be a social worker until about halfway through my undergrad degree. I actually started out as a biomed Uh, undergrad and decided after I kind of did some internships that maybe uh, going to medical school was or med school wasn't for me and I knew that I still wanted to help people um, and that's where I found social work I fell in love with it because it's so multifaceted you can work with children families refugees as you mentioned and being able to inspire one person to live their most authentic life is um, such a great blessing to me and, and it's so humbling as well
1: awesome no that's great um sorry you 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 said it exactly um you know the way most people need to hear it you know inspiring and helping others to lead their most authentic life um and that's not an opportunity sometimes um others get uh, and sometimes um, like you said, we should feel privileged that we have that opportunity uh, and we have to share that privilege with others. So thank you for saying that. And a lot of social work and a lot of mental health work, uh, I believe, um, you know, uh, enables that, you know, helps people uh, share um, that privilege with others and help them bring themselves up and, you know, be ready for accomplishing their goals in their lives. So tell us, uh, Sarah, you know, you said, um, you did not um, choose to become a social worker until about halfway through your undergrad. So uh, did something trigger those thoughts? Did something inspire you? Did you see something that you said, um, um, this is it, this is what we I, I have to take up?
2: Well, I definitely would attribute my parents um, to kind of shaping my worldview, I guess. Um, growing up, my parents were always ones that would give their shirts off their back to help somebody else. And we had several of my friends and my brother's friends who came and lived with us, some for extended amount of time, some for short period of times, but uh, just to make sure that we helped them get to where they needed to be. And I think you know, my parents have always put me in a position um, to believe in myself and to trust my intuition. And so when I came to them and explained to them that being a doctor was not uh, what I felt I was called to do, I think they were first unsure because they didn't really know if I had a plan. But then when I shared with them my plan, they were 100% supportive and they are still supportive today.
1: Awesome, awesome. You know. Again, speaks to uh, the the roots, the family roots. Uh, great, great. Thanks for sharing that story. Um, so, for, for, for our audience, uh, Sarah, would you help um, you know define social work you know a little more? You know, as um, many of us know, social work could be very broad. You know, it can touch multiple aspects of life, multiple verticals, multiple kinds of people. So, mm-hmm. in your opinion. You know what uh, Where is social work uh, supposed to be touching people's lives more? Uh, how is it defined today versus, you know, if you had the unlimited definition of where social work should actually be implemented? How would you define it?
2: Wow, okay, well, that's a, a loaded question. But definitely, I think, as we're going forward in social work today, um, and being in a evolving tech world being in a pandemic um, social workers are our number one goal is to advocate for social justice and to advocate for our clients to be autonomous so even if we can't reach a person directly through um, person-in-person contact you know being that we're in a pandemic or being that we're distant or individuals are living in a community that doesn't have direct access to mental health care workers we as social workers can can still meet the needs of individuals by putting ourselves out there on social media platforms, having conversations within our communities, and it's, and educating people who may have access like um, physicians, nurses, individuals who do work directly with the community. We can educate them on how to advocate for that social justice, how to help their clients be their number one advocate. And I think as we continue to grow um, and go towards that tech um, aspect, we need to continue to have those conversations uh, like this, like we're having today.
1: No, absolutely. No, that's a great point. I think uh, with um, you know, as you as you said, with the continuing evolving technology, uh, you know, how should that become a platform for improving access to social work? Um, now, how could uh, um, events like the pandemic, etc., which have the potential to devastate existing infrastructure, how can technology help?
2: You know, yeah. people
1: still have access to that infrastructure. Well, that's a very, very well-made point. Now mm-hmm. we all know, you know, you are a big social influencer as well. In fact, <laughs> for all the audience out there, um, you know, uh, as we can see on the screen, Sarah Joyner is the social social worker. Um, so. Tell us a little more about, you know, how did you come up with these social, social worker? How are you using the existing social media platforms um, to really reach out to people and, you know, have more importantly, give people the access to you and your resources?
2: yeah so um i started the social social worker as a way for me to reach out to the community and kind of process the change that i was going through shifting and navigating the world from going out of graduate school into the real world starting to work with clients understanding my own personal bias so having that community around me and linkedin has played such a big part in that as well because i am getting to hear The views and stories of so many individuals who have gone through similar experiences as myself Um, so originally the social social worker was for me but as i continued down this journey i realized that i was coming in contact with so many people who had so many amazing stories experiences talents um, and knowledge that they were only able to share with their clients or their close um, colleagues within their communities, and like I mentioned before, tech is a way into everybody's homes. We hold it into the palm of our hands. So, being able to give these individuals a platform to share their stories, their knowledge, their expertise was a way for me to give back to the social work community um, because I owe so much to it for being able to help me understand who I am as an individual and also blessing me with opportunities to help other individuals as well.
1: No, oh, that's great. That's great. I think, I think you know, social media is a powerful platform, including LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of these, um, you know, you said, you said it, you touched upon it. It's It could be very powerful in expanding our access. Um, yeah. Now, it, yeah, uh, you know, our company, we help clinicians, um, could be nurses, techs, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, Mm -hmm. et cetera, connect directly with potential employers who have staffing gaps or who have positions open. We connect them directly, help them um, uh, kind of get staffed, find job opportunities, et
0: cetera.
1: Um, It's pretty much like a healthcare recruiting marketplace. And we have always been trying to use social media as an effective medium. Because as you all know, um, you know, marketing is is, is really necessary to, to attract the right kind of audience to your platforms. Mm-hmm. And social media marketing is the way to go about it right now. Um, having said that, what we are observing, and I would love to hear your thoughts, is um, um, professionals and people are bombarded with social media messages, mm-hmm. social media content, um, you know, especially even general public, um, you know, we were talking uh, to, to a clinical psychologist the other day, um, and he mentioned that the act, the, op, the choices for mental health may have improved, but still people need to given levers and right tools to make the right choice, you know, who, who should they go to?
2: Mm-hmm. With
1: information being bombarded on people today, um, how should people really what are you seeing? I mean, how are they really choosing the right content? You know, how are you able to attract the right people to your platform?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's overwhelming at times. And I think sometimes with the constant bar- bombardment, it almost is like a, it sucks kind of the creativity out because I start to question myself am I experienced enough to be talking about these um, certain uh, topics that might, to have somebody questioning or wanting to seek out therapy. But I I think the best way for anybody to sort through like the constant flow of information on social media is definitely, and it is more time consuming, but do your research. If somebody piques your interest, click on their profile, look at their LinkedIn page, see if they are qualified um, for the information that they are giving out. And if If they seem like they know what they're talking about, send them a message and have them kind of share their experiences with you. Because if, at the end of the day, like you said, social media is a giant marketing tool. And if their ultimate purpose is to help an individual, they won't be um, guarded and sharing with who they are to make sure that you're receiving the proper care and treatment. So definitely do your research and take things, obviously, if it is helping you, that's great but take the constant bombardment of information that you're seeing with a grain of salt knowing that a ton of editing has gone into this know that a ton of social media is a highlight reel so know that if you are going to interact with somebody who shares um information just do a quick background search like i said social media is the best way to get to know someone and if they're willing to share their lives on social media they should be able to share their um, qualifications and expertise with potential clients as well.
1: No, that's a great point. I think, uh, um, you know, having people do a let spend a little bit of time and do a little bit of research on the content, uh, mm-hmm. definitely helps. Um, and we know, you know, you do a lot of podcasts yourself. Um, you try to bring, you know, other mental health workers and clinicians forward to the outer world. Um, and potentially have, if they go through your podcast, I'm sure that itself is acting as a lot of wetting. Um, you know that's that's a great platform to be on. So uh, please, you know, everybody that is that is out there, please check out um, Sarah Joiner, uh, uh, the social 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 worker, um, or you know her her website. Uh, please take a look at that. I think it's a great platform to be in, uh, and you know, um, great platform to reach out to multiple more people looking for um, getting help from people like you. So I would strongly recommend uh, go to www.sarahjoiner.me uh, and check it out um and you know like Sarah like you said um, um, social media platform is a great tool um you know and it is it is out there so through your social media interactions and through your podcast are you seeing uh, that more and more people are becoming mental health workers now is the volume of um, supply of care increasing are you seeing that a trend because uh, you know as we all know, mental health always comes with a stigma. It's not it's not easy for people uh, to recognize issues with mental health, etc. Uh, but I think more and more people picking up that profession, more awareness could help you know, really delete or eliminate that stigma or minimize it at least and give yeah. people the best care. So are you seeing increasing trend in uh, the, the supply of mental health care?
2: I would like to say yes, um, but as you know, you kind of mentioned my background in mental health, working with refugees. um, And I also worked with incarcerated youth during my undergrad. And I feel like mental health care and mental health care workers are on the rise, but in the way that we provide mental health care um, to more vulnerable communities, I believe, needs to also become on the rise. Training social workers to provide mental health care and working in conjunction with an interpreter or maybe providing um, mental health resources and online activities that individuals who may not um, can afford direct one-on-one therapy is something that also should be addressed. I think that Mental health, there is a great conversation around it right now, but we also can't forget that mental health should not be a privilege. Mental health should be for everyone. And so we can't forget about individuals who are less fortunate and may not have the resources to pay uh, for mental health care.
1: No, that's a great point. I think um, um, you're right. Mental health could in many, many ways be categorized as a speciality care, which potentially is, um, uh, accessible only to a few privileged people, but it should be a basic care, right. You know, just like, you uh, know, primary care and others should be basic care, right. And should be accessible to most people. Um, I think that's, that's very well said, you know, I think, um, most of, um, the, revelations of pandemic i would say uh, have also been with respect to mental health not yes. just the physical health of people
2: mm-hmm. uh, but
1: with respect to mental health um, i think cms and government authorities are taking a note of that um, and you know we have seen we have had a lot of discussion with um, with many people in the field on mm-hmm. how payment models are changing how mm-hmm. access models are changing uh, how people are our policies are being made to give people more access to mental health. I think a lot of that work is going on. Um, having said that, we're not sure if that work is reaching the right people. So right. Are, are people getting more access to mental health? Uh, there's a lot of now digital platforms to now click on and you know request for an access to therapist. Um, but is that affordable? Is 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 the payment model there? Is the insurance covering it? A lot of these discussions still come up. Are you seeing the same thing when you're talking or where on your podcast when you're interacting with all of these mental health clinicians? Are the payment models evolving to the extent that it is becoming more and more affordable for people to seek care?
2: I think like how you touched on um, the accessibility of it, uh, I think that there are individuals who are like-minded like me who are working to make it more affordable. I can't speak for everywhere in the country because I am in Austin and Austin does have a higher medium level of income. Um, And so how I see things here is very different how a clinician might see it somewhere else. Um, But what I can speak to as well, and it's a little bit off from payment method, but also that mental health is viewed differently by different cultures. So Mm -hmm. we may as Americans or, you know, first generation, second generation Americans who have been in the country understand the importance of mental health. Um, But if you're coming from a culture who mental health, that term may be scary, or it's not something that was ever introduced into your culture, or it's something that if you have it, it has a religious tie, like having an issue with your mental health has a religious tie to it. Um, those might also be prohibiting how we as clinicians, practitioners of mental health can reach those communities because there is that cultural gap in services.
1: No, that's a great point. So thank you for touching on it. Um, you know, um, I come from an upbringing in you know, a society and a culture where mental health issues if recognized uh, first of all most of that used to go unrecognized if recognized Mm -hmm. used to create a lot of social stigma Mm
2: -hmm.
1: families used to hide from others in the society if you know they have recognized that there is a mental health issue in the family you know I, Mm -hmm. I, i definitely can resonate with what you're saying um how and i think there is a little bit of stigma in in every culture uh you know a little bit of hurdles in every culture and bringing this up. Like um, uh, I, I can totally see if I have a headache, I don't have a problem calling my primary care doctor and potentially ordering multiple tests and getting pills, etc. Yeah. But if I'm feeling, if I've been feeling low or sad consistently for the past three days, I don't call anybody.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right. That happens. Um, uh, I mean, it could happen to the best people who are more aware. So through your platform, um, you know, how, how are you uh, spreading that awareness? Please tell the audience on, you know, um, what should they be looking out for through your platform on, and what should they be doing to spread this awareness so that people can recognize this a lot more better than what's happening today?
2: Well, I would say for me, I was inspired, um, and this is kind of ties into my journey as Miss Georgia United States, but I worked very closely with families and the school system on adjusting to American culture, adjusting to a public school system. What are the appropriate behaviors? What, how do we, how is it acceptable to emotionally regulate yourself? And um, I learned that it wasn't because the schools were unwilling to help these individuals. It's just because they didn't know There wasn't a conversation going on about what happens in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, what's going on in Syria, what's happening in Afghanistan and how those family beliefs and values function there and how they're not the norm in American society. So it wasn't that anybody was trying to be rude To somebody, we were just ignorant on the process. So what I learned through working through the schools and with the families is that to just have an open and honest conversation with your clients, if they are from a different culture, and even if they're not, if they're a different skin color than you, you know, race can also play a factor in Mm -hmm. how they deal with their mental health. And so on my platform, I try to represent diverse voices and ask them about their experiences as diverse voices of mental health and have them share their experiences. Because like I said earlier, if we can't go straight in to somebody's home, they can watch my YouTube channel and see that there are strong women of color, strong men of color who are working to share their information and their experiences to help somebody else live their um, authentic truth as well.
1: No, that's a great point. You know, um, uh, you touched upon um, you know, potential impact of race, impact of, um, you know, social and culture on, on people's health and mental health. Um, you know, I had, a, uh, you know, the past few months had conversations with Various clinicians, physicians, nurses, and others. Um, And to the tune, all of them unanimously agreed that the best discussion about race and social determinants is to have is about physical and mental health. You know, because they would like to see policies and procedures and practice of medicine to really adapt to the racial determinants of health and the social determinants of health. To the tune, you know, I wish those people were sitting. Um, you know, in the policy committees, for sure, because that was a great discussion. And then, you know, I had more deeper discussions with a few people on what what does that mean? Like social determinants of health and mental health, physical and mental health, racial determinants of physical and mental health. Um, I think there is a lot of research and studies going on because not everybody has the same problem. You know, right. the problems arise from the deeper roots of their society and their race, mm-hmm. uh, phys- physical as well as mental. So uh, tell us, you know, uh, your opinion, you know, and we, I would love to chat more about this with you on, um, you know, how do you, how do you think, you know, that like race, their racial determinants of health exist there? And how do you think that have to be addressed, um, you know, in a real subtle way? Because again, any discussion about race in today's world could easily be construed the wrong way, even though you have the best intentions right Um, so how do you see this this discussion happening and some potential policies changing
2: well definitely the leaders of um mental health innovations physical health innovations um definitely make sure that you're checking your own personal bias you know is what you're feeling affecting how you're making decisions for other individuals, but also know that one individual's story is not the same for every other individual. I'm a uh, mixed biracial woman, my dad is black, my mom is white, so although I am categorized as an African-American woman in American society, my story is very different than another african-american woman so my health conditions may be different because of my genetic background versus another african-american woman so definitely taking each person's story into account What environment are they coming from? What was their upbringing like? Were there addictions in their families? Are they predisposed to other mental health illnesses? Don't just say, oh, this woman is black, so she is more likely to have this, this, and this. Yes, it's good to have that in your textbook, but don't automatically assume. Get to know that person. Take that extra five minutes to get that history because then you'll not only be able to make them feel like they are a, individual who has authentic feelings, but they will also learn to advocate for themselves instead of feeling like if I show up at this doctor's office, they're just going to assume what's wrong with me and then walk out and feel defeated.
1: No, that's a great point. I think uh, um, you mentioned being sensitive to culture, sensitive to genetics, sensitive to race, and spend that extra five minutes to kind of bring these sensitivities forward and then use that to hypothesize what could potentially be wrong and then treat that. I think that's such a powerful powerful recommendation. Sarah, I would like to underscore that
2: for all of our audience
1: and potentially even use that. You know, I might steal that from you. Please, please you totally. Exactly. I think I think you said it right. Um you know although I think a lot of a lot of clinicians I mean lot of practitioners of medicine and practitioners of mental health providers of care uh, would like to do that um there potentially could be barriers right you know to right. what extent could you go um i you know as as um, a community of clinicians that uh, is measured on productivity number of patients that you see as payment models directly tied to number of patients are there enough um incentives to go deeper into personalized histories and help them is that's a great topic. And I would I would love to kind of brainstorm and get your thoughts more on that.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: so thanks for touching on that. I think you know our audience and everybody else is taking note of uh, what it means to provide more personalized care, being more culturally sensitive. Absolutely. Um, I would want to come back uh, to one point. Sorry, you mentioned that got stuck in my brain. You said you worked with incarcerated youth. Um, one of my good friends, like probably yesterday or the day before yesterday, was was I was talking to, him, and then she mentioned um, you know, she wants to start some of these potentially not-for-profit business for you know, helping people, underserved people with a greater access to certain day-to-day life products. Um, and she was mentioning, you know, who does not have access to some of those things is, you know, mostly incarcerated youth, you know, both. Uh, women and men, boys and girls, um, really don't have access to that. And then they're forming impressions at that young age. Um, uh, So it got me to thinking, I think, yeah, there is a lot of care opportunities, you know, in rehab facilities and in, you know, um, uh, uh, prison cells, et cetera, where they are entitled to, you know, the same care potentially as anybody else. So tell us more about your experience there. What did you see? What are your observations and what stories can you share with us?
2: Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I took away from it was what I just touched on a few minutes ago was taking that extra five minutes to get to know somebody and the background that they came from. Because understanding an individual's story can make a difference, a huge difference in their future. Because I worked as a social worker at the public defender's office in New Mexico, I worked directly with probation officers, judges and attorneys. Uh, And so when I was advocating for these young uh, incarcerated individuals, I shared with them their personal history. Maybe mom and dad were in trouble and had also been incarcerated. Maybe there was a history of drugs. Um, I knew several individuals who had extensive amounts of trauma, but it was never documented. It, there was nothing to say what was going on. And those few details that somebody didn't have the time to comb through and figure out, made the difference in their case. And were they were able to go to rehabilitation facilities, they were able to get into military colleges, they were given a chance that they otherwise wouldn't have had if somebody didn't sit down and ask them what happened before this point.
1: Well, that's such a great, great work that you've done. Um, Thank you. uh, No, thank you so much for doing that. Um, And I think you have uh, done full justice to the statement that you continuously make, like help somebody reach their most authentic life or live their most authentic life sitting with them, giving them a view of what the potential could look like and understanding what their background has been. Um, that's such great work. Um, now, let me let me ask you, without getting too much into politics or policies, yeah. uh, because I could easily be treading um, careful boundaries here, but I'll still go there. Uh, do you think that work, um, a lot of that work happens today are, should there be more employed social workers by government authorities in order to penetrate social work and mental therapy work into these aspects of governance
2: 100 um we kind of talked about at the beginning but social work is so fluid we see social workers in policy we see social workers in hospitals and the criminal justice system in private practice and schools so a social worker can be put in any position and help a government entity, help a private practice flourish because we're taught the cornerstones of our of what we believe in is social justice, advocacy and the self-autonomy of our clients. So even if a government agency couldn't afford to employ five social workers, I definitely think that having a trained and licensed social worker go in to a government agency and just do like a week long training on how do we how can we get information in a timely manner how can we make uh, unbiased opinions if we do have a biased opinion how do we talk to our supervisors about that and i think like you said not getting too political that social workers for a very long time have been undervalued And that's been a blessing and a curse. But the blessing side of it is we have learned how to do so much with very little. And I think a lot of people have access to tremendous amount of resources, but just don't have the skills or the abilities to build that rapport with their clients to um, treat them effectively and efficiently. So like I said before, even if you can't afford to have a social worker in your Uh, clinical practice or in the government agency, at least have them come in or do a webinar and explain like, this is how you can get certain information without having to diagnose or anything like that. But being able to have a conversation to dig a little deeper, that will make your job and their life so much easier.
1: That's well said. No, That's that's great. I think even those entities could use technology uh, better to make this more accessible. So let me, let me try to catch you a little off guard here. And, you know, (laughs) Um, if let's say you had a hundred million dollars and no red tape, let's say hundred is a number, 200, 300, you pick a number. So many millions of dollars, no red tape. And somebody would give you the money to go ask and to ask you to go and build something that would a company or an organization or a practice that would enable penetration of social work and mental health more into people's lives. What would that look like? What would you build?
2: Oh, well, I, I don't think it would be a physical structure. I think that the pandemic has taught us so much in terms of, we can do so much from home. We can do so much from our living rooms and we can do so much from our phones. So I would definitely invest a lot of that money into, um, Some type of educational app or uh, learning program that gives access to individuals to, to talk about what I addressed earlier of how can you get to know a client in a few simple steps? How can you become more culturally aware? What are some steps that you can take to build rapport with community leaders who might not be government officials, but more like religious leaders in the community or if it is a community that has a lot of gangs how can you create a dialogue with the quote-unquote gang leaders or representatives to be sure that everybody is being served in a respectful and culturally competent manner
1: no it's a great point i think uh, creating more digital infrastructure uh, could enable more penetration. I think you know, that's 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 a great point. Um, I would definitely love to join you on the journey when we find that million, hundred million dollars. Yeah, I <laughs> definitely. You know, I think
2: if you're listening, you know, invest. yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. You know, you're going to send this um, uh, podcast recording to a few investors. Um, um, so uh, going back, um, you know, sorry, you have um, uh, the you you won on a big stage. You were Miss Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, you know, at that um, at that stage of your life, um, winning as a comprehensive individual on such a big stage, what did it take for you to prepare for it? For you to you know bring the resilience that you were able to bring to the stage or the strength? What did it take to prepare for um, you know such an event and such a competition?
2: Yeah, I mean I would love to say that it was this fairy tale story and I just woke up and I said, I'm gonna be Mr. Robin and they <laughs> found me. But no, it was years and years and years of no's. I started competing when I was 17 years old and I did win my first pageant. It was a local pageant, but it was not to the scale <laughs> of what it is to compete at a state and national level. So when I made the transition to state competitions, I always struggled internally with this feeling of unworthiness because every time I got on the stage, I was never quite enough. I made top 15, top five, top three, first runner up, but I could never capture that crown. And so the difference between me at 17 and me at 25 competing was all of the no's drove me to really look inside myself and say, regardless of what somebody says, what do I need to be happy, to be healthy, and to be in a good mental health state? And when I figured out what those things were, I started going to therapy. I started eating well. I was able to find happiness. And then when I competed as Georg- for Miss Georgia United States in 2019, I really believe that that's shown through on stage. It showed to the judges that I was a well-rounded person because I wasn't just there being what I thought they wanted me to be. I was who I wanted to be and was okay if they weren't going to accept that.
1: That's great. Oh my God.
2: Thank
1: you. I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. Um, So you had multiple no's. Multiple rejections to the extent that there were there was a potential of you feeling you this was probably not for you. Yeah. Yet you competed, yet you focused on your inner self, came out of each no and each rejection um, as a stronger individual, focused on your mental health and your well-roundedness, and then eventually everybody was able to see that, you know. Uh, that this is the person that definitely has to win that pageant. So, thank you for sharing that story. I, um, one of my good mentors once told me, like, you should not look at a no as a no, and no only means no new opportunity. Yeah. So that I think you very well exemplify that.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It took me a while to understand that a no or somebody else's opinion didn't define who I was. Um, but once I learned that, I've tried to implement that into all aspects of my life, not just in pageantry. Uh, because if I continued to let things get me down, I definitely would not be where I am today. Uh, and I would not be a licensed social worker. So I am appreciative of all the doors that were closed um, because more opportunities came my way than I could have ever imagined.
1: No, that's that's great. Um, and I want to underline this for myself, frankly, and for all of our audience and for everybody else who would have the opportunity to listen to this, which is being appreciative of the notes that you receive, being appreciative of the doors that were closed. How many times have we thought, has anyone thought of being appreciative of the rejections that you faced? I think that ties very closely to mental health as well, which is if you are able to change your rewire your thinking to be appreciative of the rejections, coming from personal, professional, social, any kind of challenges, you would have a total different aspect to your own mental health, and that would potentially lead you to success.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm going to underline that. Thank you.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I know. I'm glad that I could share, and uh, I would definitely recommend anybody who thinks that they would benefit from speaking to a therapist, you should 100% try it. Even if you have to try a couple different ones to figure out who fits best with your personality, it has helped me more. And not just because I am in this realm of mental health, but having a therapist to share my most intimate and unfiltered thoughts has helped me retrain my brain and become a professional and be the person I want to be in my personal life um, much quicker than I could have done it on my own.
1: It's a great point. I think uh, if we think we need help to look at things differently or you know, to focus on what's important, uh, definitely go get that help. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So. In terms of um, um, getting people the help, um, it triggers my thought a little bit on, um, there is so much that goes on at the workplaces, right? You know, where you work, you know, in your company, in your plant that you're working at, It could be you know, in a supermarket that you're working at, wherever you're working, uh, that plays so much role in your life. You know, your coworkers, your boss, your, um, Customers, you know, other people that you have to interact with on a day-to-day because of the work, and and, and as we all know, you know, work uh, could be one of the big contributors of disturbances to to mental health. It's it's a known fact. Um, What should organizations be thinking of in order to help their employees, their workers, get better access to this? Because most of the times I, I, I talk about access to care, et cetera. We are talking about government, we're talking about clinics, hospitals, therapists, so we need to have more access. But there is a big entity, which is employers, mm-hmm. that have a lot of access to their people. And we know the majority of the population is is, you know, is definitely employed. You know, Employers have access to majority of the population. So what, in your opinion, should employers be doing more of with respect to getting people the help that they need?
2: normalizing mental health days i mean we're allowed to take sick days and nobody says like oh you have a fever like please don't come to work so if you're having anxiety attack and you don't come to work you're you're being penalized for that and so it shouldn't be uh it shouldn't be like this oh my gosh like you're having a mental health issue like you you know we're not we're not gonna provide the resources that you need but it's like oh you're sick like go to the doctor this is the doctor that i use like you should call this place this is what our insurance Mm -hmm. covers so having that conversation around like hey if work is really stressing you out and you need a day to just decompress that's fine like no questions asked you get a set amount of mental health days and if you need them you take them just like we take vacation just like we take sick days um I think too, and like I've kind of talked before, is if you can't afford to have a social worker on staff that individuals can come and talk to, have a social worker come in and teach uh, calming techniques, teach breathing techniques, or just teach um, your administrators how they can become more approachable by their employees, how you can make your environment a safe place, um, and just... Learn some tools to empower your employees to empower themselves.
1: Another great point. Um, you know, I've, I've always like majorly worked for startups or, or my own companies, but I've also had my own share of working for big employers. I'll tell you, to date, I've not had any of those big employers invite a social worker to give us a talk. It has never happened. And now I'm appalled as to, why that hasn't happened? That should have been such a simple thought for employers to bring in, like you rightly said, to bring in social workers, therapists, or you know, other mental health workers, experts to come in and speak with leaders, business leaders, managers, administrators, even employees, you know, to, to, to create techniques if they don't want to have somebody on site all the time at least those techniques, simple tips could be taught that that's where we should be spending our hundred million dollars. Yes. <laughs> I think so. I, I'm appalled that ha- that has never happened. You know, they've never invited one to come and talk because how is an employee receiving, let's say certain feedback or performance scores that the manager has just handed over to that employee? Nobody knows. No. Like, what if that is creating a stress? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's that's a great point. And there are more stressful environments than others. I think those employers should should make this even more by design. Some environments of work are more stressful. Yeah, Um, you know there are there are people. For example, I can think of um, you know think of let's say miners or people working out in the fields. They're constantly in the noise. Mm -hmm. They they don't have calm environments, and suddenly when they come out, are they feeling disturbed? Should they be more exposed to some mental health help
2: right yeah no definitely and i you know you and many other people who are watching uh, are very educated individuals but social work is not uh something that's spoken about a lot and if you see a social worker on tv uh usually they're taking away somebody's kids so I think that if a large company who has never been exposed to a social worker and only seen it through the media may not want me to come in and talk to them because they're like, oh my gosh, if they talk to our employees, they might start taking away their kids. And although I am a mandated reporter, which means that if I suspect child abuse, I have to report it. It's not my goal in life to make you miserable. My goal in life is to give you the tools that you need to become the best version of yourself and I think that there's just a very negative connotation that comes with social workers and I think the more of us that become visible in the media and on social media and speak our truths will start to change the thinking around how social workers can make a bigger impact in our communities and in our societies.
1: That's such a great point I think Thanks for touching upon that again. I think you defined it um, better again for you know, our audience and people that would potentially have access to this uh, this recording, which is um, how social work is actually a well-rounded work will enable you to live your best life versus having pigeonholed views of all oh, social work means kids being taken away, et cetera. That's not the case. You know. Thanks for reminding us of that. Um, and I think there is, for everybody out there taking uh, notes from this uh, uh, this discussion, there is an opportunity for employers to do more with getting more social work and therapists help to design their own worker management or workforce management techniques. Yeah. And, and give them the access to those things. It's I'm sure it can easily be incorporated into you know, some of their uh, uh, payment models or, you know, some of the uh, insurance models that they already have access to these things should not be that difficult to incorporate if the employers have the will to do that.
2: Right. And it just, it just boils down to having a conversation. And I always take it back to the conversations that I had with the schools and the families that I helped resettle. Neither one of them understood or knew, and we don't know what we don't know. So if we're not exposed to it, if we're not having conversations about it, we can't get upset at people for not doing something unless they're exposed to it and are learning about it.
1: No, totally. Great point. Yep. Um, last question, uh, Sarah, although I could do this all day, uh, (laughs) I'm I'm so happy that, you know, the the direct chefs got the opportunity to bring forth your story. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much our mission. Our mission is to provide clinicians better opportunities to find better jobs, better staffing opportunities, um, and at the same time, bring, you know, clinician and you know, people who provide the care to all of us, bring their stories forward. That's pretty much our mission. So, and and I, I can already feel our mission being fully served today and, you know, being completely justified today. So once again, thank you. Um, but I do have one last question. Um, you know, you, you, you've won a pageant. Uh, you've been a social worker. You did a lot of humanitarian work. You continue to do lot of podcasts. You're a social media influencer. Um, I I may be forgetting a few things, but you are a ton of things that you have accomplished through, you know, being strong and, you know, and resilient and all of that. Um, So what is the best compliment that you've ever received?
2: I think the best compliment that anybody has given me, and I've gotten it a few times um, within the past few months is that people really appreciate my warmth i never thought of my of myself as a warm person um but the more that people bring it to my attention the more i want to be intentional with my warmth and so when i do interact with individuals i want to make sure that they feel like i'm a trusted person that they can share their truths with um and also that they can walk away knowing that they don't have to sh- to carry their burdens on their own anymore. And knowing that they have somebody who will listen to them and help them find the tools that they need to, to continue to live their lives and get on a track that makes them feel their most authentic selves.
1: Totally, that's, I think, a very well-justified compliment. I can feel that today. Um, I can uh, totally um, feel the, the warmth, the trust, um, and the credibility that you bring immediately to any stage that you're on. Um, you. Again, I'm, I'm sure that is backed up by years and years worth of hard work and experiences um, and expertise. Um, so definitely, thank you for sharing that with me. To all the audience out there, that are listening to this live, watching this live, and potentially will see this later on, please check uh, at Instagram, the social social worker, and www.sarahjoiner.me. And I would strongly recommend um, taking some notes from this on some important points and recommendations that Sarah gave about um, mental health awareness and how um, helping others reach their full potential of life, live their authentic life, is such an important aspect of mental health and how mental health needs to be recognized as a primary right versus a privilege. I think there are a lot of such key takeaways. Sarah, thank you for sharing that. Um, Again, it's a privilege for us to have you on our stage today. Any final thoughts, comments that you want to share with our audience?
2: All I ask is that anybody who is watching, whether you are a clinician or a potential client yourself of um, one of these clinicians is advocate for yourself. Know that there is nothing wrong with saying what you need and what you feel. You're an expert of your own story. You're an expert of what's going on and how you feel. So be sure that you are open and transparent with anybody who is providing you health care, providing you mental health care because only you know yourself the best. And by empowering yourself to be an advocate for yourself, you are going to be an inspiration for so many others to come.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah, for that. Thank you again for being a part of uh, our little journey here and our platform. Um, Raj, over to you.
0: Raj, you're on mute. Okay. Thank you, Omshi. Thank you, Sarah. I enjoyed every minute of the entire conversation. Uh, uh, Sarah, I, I have one last question, just the fun part again. Um, if okay. you're not recording your podcast, if you're uh, doing something which you love, which is again cooking, I also read in your bio, you spoil your cat, Remy.
2: Yes. So
0: is, is Remy around? How do you do that?
2: <laughs> well, Remy is uh, sleeping On the sofa in front of me. Um, So she's hanging out. um, But we are big foodies in this house. So anytime we eat, obviously, we have to give Remy some treats. Uh, So she's always eating treats and um, lots of pets and lots of love. Um, She's our fur baby. So we have to to give her a lot of love and attention.
0: Thank you so much. So uh, for all the listeners out there, make sure you enjoy your time with uh, whatever... Sarah has mentioned uh, throughout her journey, right from being 17 year old to 25 year old to impacting millions of lives over there in the society on social media. So make sure if you're watching the replay, uh, like, comment, share, and also visit the social media handles of uh, Sarah. And uh, if you have any questions, again, feel free to get in touch with her on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you so much Sarah. I've got too many no's on social media before. You accepted this particular uh, podcast interview. Again, a huge thank you. I can go on and on, but um, in the uh, interest of time, again, we'll stay in touch. We'll wait to hear lots of your podcasts. And thank you so much uh, for all the listeners out there who is uh, listening to this on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Please do share it. And we'll see you with the next episode of Direct Stories. Thank you
2: all. Thank you.